Yes? All right. It is great to be with you this morning. Uh, I would love to invite you to open with me to the book of Colossians, and if you're able to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. I'll pause. It's a small book, easy to miss. All right. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the one who is first over all creation. Because all things were created by him, both in the heavens and on the earth, the things that are visible and the things that are invisible, whether they are thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He existed before all things, and all things are held together in him. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the one who is firstborn from among the dead, so that he might occupy the first place in everything. Because all the fullness of God was pleased to live in him, and he reconciled all things to himself through him, whether things on earth or in the heavens, he brought peace through the blood of his cross. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies with him in your minds, which was shown by your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you before God as people who are holy, faultless, and without blame. But you need to remain well-established and rooted in faith and not shift away from the hope given in the good news that you heard. The message has been preached throughout all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, became a servant of this good news, the word of God for the people of God. Uh, it's great to be with you. I feel like that's an obligation to say. Uh, it's true today, though. Uh, it is great to be with you. Uh, if I don't know you, my name is Caleb. Uh, I've been at this church, gosh, going on six, seven years now, something like that, somewhere in there. It's crazy. Started out as a youth resident intern, uh, was the church receptionist for a couple months, <laughs> left, uh, never left attending here, but kind of uh, left working here uh, for a little while, and now I'm back for about a year helping part-time with online ministry. So those online, hello, this is what I sound like. Um, so if you haven't seen me around, it's not because I haven't been around, it's because I hide in the back somewhere, uh, you know, texting um, the online people. This feels like one of those texts where I should just kind of pray and go home, because I don't know if I'm going to say anything better than what Paul has already said for us this morning. And truly, uh, this is week two in a several-week series where we'll be in the book of Colossians. And Paul has some powerful things to say to us out of this book. Um, but one thing that struck me as I prepared for this from last week's sermon um, was this line. And maybe it wasn't the one that stuck out to you, but it stuck out to me because I find it very true. Epistles are hard. <laughs> if you've ever tried to teach or really read and understand the epistles, which make up most of the New Testament, it is, they're very difficult. Sometimes they're difficult in that they feel like they should be easy because it's where Paul is explaining the gospel to us and explaining what it means. And it feels like, yeah, we get it. But epistles are hard because 
ultimately what you're doing is reading someone else's mail. And sometimes what Paul has to say to one group of Christians that feels very clear when you're reading that epistle, Paul will say something in another epistle that almost sounds like he's contradicting himself from the first epistle. And we as Christians have to go, well, I assume Paul knew what he was doing, (laughs) right? That we're dealing with sometimes one letter in a series of correspondence back and forth between the church and Paul. Sometimes we're dealing with uh, specific issues that we have to do our best to recreate, but the truth is we don't really know the specifics of what Paul's dealing with. And this is true for today's epistle, but Paul's helped us out a little bit by opening this letter after his little thanksgiving and introduction with this hymn of Christ. This reflection, this poetic reflection, as you read along, you probably noticed it looked like poetry. It, it, it is poetic in nature. We're unsure if Paul is borrowing from a hymn that was known at the time or if Paul is making this up on the spot. Um, but it's a beautiful poem about what Christ, who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. So whatever specific issues Paul feels like the Colossians are dealing with, whatever uh, false teachings or bad practices he's going to correct later in the letter, he seems to think it starts here. Something's wrong in their understanding of Jesus. That somehow, the central figure of our faith, there's something in there that the Colossians need a little reminder about. And I don't know about you, but my family loves to tell stories. Maybe it's just because I come from a tribe of pastors and they, by nature, tell stories. That was probably the biggest difference between my dinner table and your dinner table if you didn't grow up in a pastor's family, is I knew anything I shared was then fodder for the sermon the coming week. Um, But my family loves to tell stories. Um, I get a sense that most families... Uh, part of what brings them together is the stories that they share. It's funny how becoming friends with people, one of the things you do is sit and listen to their stories. And it's the more you know someone else's story, the more you feel close to each other. And it's funny how how storytelling and memory work. Around our dinner table, for example, uh, we're not all here this week, but if we were all here this week and gathering for uh, Sunday lunch, uh, it would be a lot of stories. And it'd be a mix of stories. There'd be stories about people who've been dead for a very long time and who were dead before most of us at the table were even alive, but we continue to tell their story. There'd be stories about some of us doing silly things as little kids. I don't know about you, but I know some of these stories really well. I'm not sure if I actually remember what happened, but I've heard the story so many times that it's like I remember what happened. And so I assume it was true because I don't think my parents would lie to me about it necessarily. There's also those stories that are kind of a mix. Everyone at the table was there and we're all sharing the story and it's a mix of all of our memories. And sometimes there's arguments about which way the story needs to be told and you're not telling it right, right? That's not how it went, but it makes the story better, right? (laughs) And I'm amazed the number of times uh, we were last, earlier this month, we were with some of my cousins that I hadn't seen in 10 years, some of them. And we're sharing stories from our childhood. And I could not, 
I, I kept being amazed the number of times that someone would start telling a story and suddenly memories would come flooding back as if they'd been locked away, just waiting for someone to tell the right story for them to come out. And then I feel like I have to share my memory and then that unlocks someone else's memory, they share. And suddenly we're down a rabbit hole where, you know, we're telling stories from 20 years ago and everyone in the room who wasn't there is just like eyes glazed over, <laughs> right? It's like stories unlock a piece of ourselves that we too often keep hidden away or, forgot, or, or we forget. They, they're a core piece of our existence. And it's why many philosophers, in fact, argue that stories and storytelling are a key part of who we are as a species. That we, there's something in us, in the human experience, that longs for the telling and receiving of good stories. And from those good stories, then we shape our lives. And as Christians, uh, the word Christ is right there in the name. Our spiritual family story centers on the person and work of Jesus. I hope that's not a surprise. But Jesus is the center. And in fact, the church has known this for a long time. If we don't get Jesus right, we fall apart as a people. In fact, most fights in church history have been over the nature of Jesus. Because here's the problem. For all of church history, we as a people have pretty much agreed that Jesus is 100% the revelation, 100% God, but also somehow 100% human. And as the youths might say, that math don't math. That math doesn't at 200%. And so statistically in church history, if you want to get yourself labeled a heretic, what you do is this. Uh, you try to make Jesus either just a little less divine. Because, you know, we have a background in Greek mythology. We understand things like demigods, right? Or people who achieve so great a thing, it's like they are godly. Or you make Jesus just a little less human. So that we can comprehend how the divine could do things like, I don't know, as Paul says, the fullness of God could take on flesh, be born, eat, sleep, die, hunger, thirst, poop. <laughs> you would be surprised at the amount of writing that's been done about the nature of Jesus's body and digestion. More than you'd think, not a ton, but it's there. <laughs> and then we get into the whole thing, pre-resurrection, post-resurrection, how's the, right? It's, it's a whole thing. But <laughs> there's something so central to us that we have to get Jesus right or we, or we don't understand this thing. Because Christian maturity, what we here call holiness, in its most basic form is this, looking more like Jesus. It's why I grew the hair out. just want to look more like Jesus. Uh, I think Jesus would say, clean the inside of the cup first, right? All right. Um, but if we don't center ourselves on him daily, if we don't really know what Jesus is like, it's much easier instead of making ourselves look more like Jesus to take the shortcut and make Jesus look more like us. Because then I'm there. I've done it. Woo, holiness done. Thank you. And that's why Paul, 
centers the story of the scriptures, the Old Testament, yes, and even though it's technically being written as he's writing this, the New Testament, the story of the scriptures, he centers it all on Jesus here in this hymn. Jesus is central to all of it. He is the beginning and the end of our faith. He is the sustainer of all that we are for Paul Perhaps it's easier just to hear him say it again, right? The Son is the image of the invisible God, the one who is first over all creation because all things were created by him, both in the heavens and on the earth, things visible, invisible, whether they are thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. He existed before all things and all things are held together in him. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the one who is first born from among the dead, so that he might occupy, occupy the first place in everything. Because all the fullness of God was pleased to live in him, and he reconciled all things to himself through him, whether things on, in, on earth or in the heavens, he brought peace through the blood of his cross. Did you catch it? In the Christian story, as Paul tells it, Jesus is the head or first of three things for us. And I tried to make him have alliteration and it just didn't work out. But there are three, three ways Jesus is the first or head. First of all, Jesus is what Paul calls the first of creation. Through him, everything was made and everything is held together in him. Now, if we know Genesis very well, this shouldn't surprise us. Maybe it surprises us that Jesus is there. If we've read John, maybe not so much. But if we know Genesis well, it shouldn't surprise us then. Paul's telling us creation is good. God looks at creation and says, this is very good. So being created isn't the problem. In fact, God was willing to become flesh and dwell among us. God cares deeply about creation, about us, about our bodies. So it makes sense then that we come to God with our pain and concerns, even our fleshly pain and concerns. Jesus is the first of creation. Second, Jesus is our clearest revelation of God. In him, we see most clearly what God is like. Now, I love my Bible. Look, I brought a hardback one and everything. I love all these 66 books. There were some I didn't think I liked so much, and then I started teaching out of them, and I was like, I like that one too. But in this, there's a small little sliver. They're not very long overall in the scheme of the Bible. They're called the four Gospels, and in it we meet a guy named Jesus. And whatever else we may think we know about God from other parts of the book guess who we got to run it by? You can answer. It's okay. It's always the answer. Jesus, right? If we read scripture and the God we come to at the end doesn't look like the Messiah who offers hope, peace, restoration, and then is willing to die on the cross for his enemies rather than raise the sword, we are not reading the Bible correctly. Jesus is, God has revealed to us in the scriptures 
but where we look to most clearly see God is in the person of Jesus Christ. And then finally, Jesus is the head of the body, us, the church. Jesus is the, just as he's the first of the old creation, Jesus is now the first, the head of the new creation. Because somehow in the mystery of God, if we want to know what God's like, we look at Jesus. But similarly, if we want to know what humans are supposed to look like, we also look at Jesus. So let's not lose sight of that in all the discussion about, quote unquote, what it's like to be a biblical man or a biblical... The litmus test is Jesus. Not Samson, not, I don't know. Even Paul's good, not Paul, Jesus. He is our example of holy living. He shows us what it looks like to be saved. And here's what it looks like. Self-giving love that goes all the way to death on a cross. That's it. We as Christians have no right to say that the ends justify the means. If the ends justified the means, Jesus and Satan's conversation at the beginning of the gospel would have been a little different. Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane would have been a little different. Instead, we learn, as Christ told us, he is the way, the truth, and the life. The ends are the means. Love. So why do the Colossians need to hear this? Did they not, had they, you know, forgotten about Jesus? Had they, no, we, I mean, we don't know the specifics. But one thing I suspect is this. In their day, this story that Paul so beautifully tells in this hymn is not the only story that explains the world in their time. In fact, they lived in an empire that told a very different story the Roman story went something like this. Depending on which mythology we follow, creation is either uh, happened because of infighting or trickery among the gods. And all you have to do is look around and realize people get old. Their bodies don't work how they used to. You put some fruit out on a table, forget about it. You're going to come back. It's all deteriorated. And that seems bad. And if creation naturally moves us towards deterioration, that seems pretty bad too. So this whole being created thing, not all it's cracked up to be. In fact, maybe let's forget about the body stuff and focus on what is eternal, truth, goodness, wisdom. And that's fine, I guess, but in its most extreme forms, it either leads us to a sort of what we call asceticism, where we see the body as a hindrance, so our main job is to get control of it by any means necessary, even if we have to, like, starve it, whip it, punish it. Or on the other side of the coin, uh, the body doesn't matter, so who cares? Do whatever you want with your body. As long as your brain's good, we're all good. In the Roman story, Jesus isn't the image of God. Caesar is God incarnate. Do you want to know what God's like? Look at Caesar. He's mighty. He's powerful. He conquered the world. He brought us peace. 
It wasn't Jesus who brings peace in the Roman story, but Rome and her emperor have forced the world into submission. They have brought Pax Romana, peace on earth. Might makes right. The ends justify the means. Peace comes not through giving of yourself, but through the sword, the shield, the spear, conquest. Some in Paul's circles uh, in Colossians may, may have found themselves leaning maybe too heavily on the Jewish story. And I think those of us who know the, the Old Testament well can agree that it is far easier to reconcile than perhaps the Roman story is. But we'll see later in the book, Paul's a little concerned that focusing too hard on the Old Testament laws and the Mosaic Covenant, it falls short of God's fullest revelation in Christ. Paul will have plenty to say in the coming chapters about the Old Testament law, its benefits, its shortcomings, all that. I'll save that for my dad to get to in later weeks. For now, it's fair to say that the Jewish scriptures were radically changed for Paul by the person of Jesus. By placing Jesus at the center, the scripture, the Old Testament scriptures don't disappear. They aren't nullified. They are centered, fulfilled, and brought to new focus in the person of Jesus Christ. So Paul's concerned. Hey, Colossians, which story are you telling? Because our family story, there's someone in the middle. Let's make sure he's the beginning, the end, the sustainer, creator. He's centered. So why does, why does this matter for us? Um, why come to church? When I was young, there's a story, I think my dad even told it recently. Uh, it was Christmas, I was little, and I was in Sunday school, and my parents picked me up and they said, hey, Caleb, how was Sunday school? And I was like, ugh. It was so boring. We talked about Mary and baby Jesus for the thousandth time. I wanted some new stories. I turned on the TV, they got a new story for me every, every day. It's lovely. Why do we continue to tell this story with Jesus at the center? Well, it's we also find ourselves in a culture full of stories. Stories about who we are as humans, where we come from, why the world is such a broken mess and what the solutions to the world's problems are. Not even accounting for the diverse, kind of traditionally what we'd call religious stories present in our world. We, as an American society, are full of various stories, and each one is always seeking to kind of dominate and ask us to follow its life. The story of consumerism. We're all consumers. Everything can be bought for the right price. Cash is king. Everyone bow to the almighty dollar. If you're not making money, you're losing money. The person with the most toys wins. Oh, here's one that we love in Idaho, the rugged individualism story. There, uh, we were all created as self-contained individuals capable of making the best decisions for ourselves without outside influence. Freedom is our ultimate right. And if everyone else, the man, teens up front, your parents, right, the government, if they would just leave us alone, everything would run a lot smoother. 
There's the story of American exceptionalism, that there are two types of people in the world, Americans and people who wish they were Americans. That the United States of America is God's chosen country, the new Zion, a city on a hill set apart to bring the kingdom of God to earth. And the problem for us today is that people just don't love America enough. They're trying to lead us astray. And if they just remember why America is so good and live the American dream, it all sort itself out. This one I know a lot of us are concerned about the secular postmodern story. That we are all the result of random chance in a universe that is uncaring towards our continued existence. As Nietzsche said, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. We are the highest power. But there are many things worth giving our lives over to in order to improve our own lives. And ultimately, the best truth then if we're here for a little while and then gone, is be true to yourself. If everyone would just live their own truth and let everyone else live their own truth, we would all finally have peace. I wasn't sure what to call this last story without getting in trouble, so I'm going to call it the Idaho is full story. That we created paradise, or at least as close to it as you're going to get on earth. Our parents, our grandparents, us, our work through blood, sweat, and tears brought about a utopia of sorts before X group arrived and ruined it. Right? Millennials. Gen Z. Oh, sorry, guys. Um, Californians. I hear this story a lot. If you want to know what God looks like, look at the past. We had it figured out back then the way things were. Go look at the leaders that got us there. And salvation is returning to the good old days like it used to be. But don't you dare tell me how the good old days weren't good for everyone. Because I remember, I, told this, I, I have the stories to, to back it up. Now notice, not all of these stories are completely untrue. Some may be closer to the truth than others. And yes, I realize I caricatured them a bit in explaining them. And if you'd like to send me an email letting me know exactly what I got wrong about your favorite of these stories, please remember my email is sdaniels at nampaccn.com. I know it's confusing because there's another S Daniels, but trust me, it'll get to the right spot. And yes, as people who exist in a society where these stories are prevalent, we can't help but absorb them a little bit. Hopefully, the pieces we absorb are the ones that are most true and helpful in a mature Christian faith. However, notice that none of these stories captures the fullness, beauty, and I would argue truth of the Christian message. The gospel, as Paul presents it here in Colossians 1. If you give your life over to any of these stories, you might be happy in some ways. You might be successful by certain standards. But I don't think you'll look like Jesus. It doesn't matter what story Christ has called us out from when we converted the centrality of Jesus to who we are as Christians should completely 
alter and reprioritize our story, just as it did Paul and his Pharisaic Judaism. So here's the question. Which story are we living out? I hope it's the one here in Colossians. I pray it's that. But sometimes I'm not so sure. And how do we even know? How do we keep ourselves from thinking we're following the Christian story, telling the Christian story, and actually we're telling a different one? I think Paul helps us here too. Notice the second part of our reading today. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies with him in your minds, which has shown, was shown by your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you before God as a people who are holy, faultless, and without blame. But you need to remain well established and rooted in faith and not shift away from the hope given in the good news that you heard. This message has been preached throughout all creation under heaven. And I, Paul, became a servant of this good news. So, so how do we know what story we're telling? What story we're living into? Paul seems to say this, the same thing Jesus told, tells us in Matthew chapter 7. You will know them by their fruit. You will know them by their fruit. Now we may need a little help discerning which fruit we should be harvesting and which fruit is not a good fruit to be growing here. This is where if I was at my school, I would make like a agriculture joke uh, and say like, kids, I, you all are farmers, you know this stuff, and I don't. I grew up in the city. What fruit is our, are our lives giving? What fruit are our ministries producing? What fruit is the stories we tell bringing into abundance? Now, I have to be careful here. Because it's easy then to turn this into some sort of prosperity gospel where if we follow the X story, things will go to such and such a place for us. We will be happier, more successful. None of that happened to Jesus. He lived the clearest expression of faith in history and they killed him for it. Because church, I'm fearing that as a, as a church and as a society, we are facing a fruit fallout. Leaders that we thought were singing the hymn of Christ, were telling the story of Christ, we have found out instead we're telling us very different stories. And the continued falling apart of ministries across the country and around the world, the continued deterioration of what seems like our ability to even work together as a society, I think is a realization that we've been following people who are producing the wrong fruit, 
who are telling the wrong story. John Wesley, when asked this very question, uh, Pastor Wesley, how do we know if something is of God, if, uh, if kind of that feeling of the Spirit is of God, or if it's something else leading us astray? And in one of his many sermons, he had this brilliant paragraph that I just have to read. Now, he is, you know, he's using the King James. There's some these and nows, but I think we can get through it. John Wesley said this, but waiving the consideration of whatever he has or has not experienced in time past, by the present marks, may we easily distinguish a child of God from a presumptuous self-deceiver. So for him, it's very easy to tell. The scriptures describe that joy in the Lord which accompanies the witness of his spirit as a humble joy, a joy that abases to the dust to make a pardoned sinner cry out, I am vile, what am I or my father's house? Now mine eye seeth thee, I abhor myself in dust and ashes. And wherever lowliness is, there is meekness, patience, gentleness, long-suffering. There is a soft, yielding spirit, a mildness and sweetness, a tenderness of soul which words cannot express. But do these fruit attend that supposed testimony of the spirit in a presumptuous person? Just the reverse. The more confident they are of the favor of God, the more they are lifted up. The more do they exalt themselves, the more haughty and assuming is their whole behavior. The stronger witness they imagine themselves to have, the more overbearing are they to all around them. The more incapable of receiving any reproof, the more impatient of contradiction, instead of being more meek and gentle and teachable, more swift to hear and slow to speak, they are more slow to hear and swift to speak, more unready to learn of anyone, more fiery and vehement in, his, in their temper and eager in their conversation. Yea, perhaps there will sometimes appear a kind of fierceness in their air, their manner of speaking, their whole deportment, as if they were just going to take the matter out of God's hands and themselves to devour the adversary. Whose story are we telling with our lives? What fruit are we producing? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Notice, power is not a truth, or power is not a fruit of the Spirit. Even truth, as good as it is, is not a fruit of the Spirit. Might is not a fruit of the Spirit. Victory is not a fruit of the Spirit. I hope and pray that Christ is the center of all we are as a people. 
but stat after stat, survey after survey of the young people coming up in our churches tells us they are leaving in droves, not because they don't like this Jesus guy, but because they don't think we believe what we say we believe. That they hear the words of our mouth and the actions of our lives and they see a very different story at play. God have mercy. And may it not be so with us. Christ is the first of creation. Christ is our fullest revelation of who God is. Christ is the head of this body. May we be more like him each day. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word to us out of this beautiful book of Colossians. May we truly center our lives on you. May we leave this place invigorated and looking more like your son, Christ Jesus, than when we arrived. May the world look at us and see you. May we be today the body and blood of Christ for a world that so desperately needs it. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us? Let's sing together.
Apologize for going just a couple minutes over. Ryan, can we make a note that next week we just take a couple minutes off the sermon for next week to make it up for going a little over this week? I think that'll be good. Um, as we depart this time together, go with this blessing that we've heard already read at least two times today. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies with him in your minds, which was shown by your evil actions. But now... He has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you before God as a people who are holy, faultless, and without blame. May that be true of us today. Go in his peace.